The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host today, joined by Dan Santoramita, editor at Future Sox. It's great to have Dan alongside us. James Fox, congratulations. He is a father, a healthy baby boy, Bennett James Fox. It was a Thanksgiving evening, I believe it was, that he was born. So that, that's exciting for him. So we wish him the best and his family. Really excited to talk to you again. It's been a little bit here on the podcast. Dan. A lot of stuff to talk about today. We have a conversation upcoming with Matt Cassidy, former editor-in-chief here at Future Sox, about the recent news regarding the Pioneer League and Great Falls no longer being an affiliate with the Chicago White Sox, uh, but other things that we need to hit on. The non-tender deadline, as we record this podcast, came and went. The White Sox made some decisions. We'll go into all of it, as well as a lot of the coaching stuff. The Chicago White Sox have established their coaching staff, so I'm excited to get your takes. First and foremost, Dan, how's it going? How's your Thanksgiving? How's your quarantine? We're still in it uh, as we approach 2021. Yeah, we're we're uh, we're alive. We're able yes. to communicate. Those are both good things, right? That's the standard uh, we have right now. <laughs> yeah, I, fr- I don't know what you're talking about all this baseball for. I thought we were just going to talk about uh, James's baby pictures. Yeah, we could. Did you see? The, oh my goodness! Like they resemble each other so freaking well. I, I couldn't believe it. Uh, I saw James, baby James, right there in that photo. We can we could go into detail. What do you think? Bennett James is going to start scooping stories for us uh, at Future Socks down the road. What do you think? <laughs> is that the family business? Is that what you're getting at? <laughs> Maybe it could be. I mean, James is a, James is a pro. So apple doesn't fall, fall too far from the tree. Is that the expression? Yeah, absolutely. All right, so let's talk some White Sox baseball, you and I this time. Starting with the non-tender deadline, Jace Fry. Jace Fry is a guy who is coming back. He signed a one-year deal. They avoided arbitration just under a million dollars. But Jace Fry, I thought, had a bit of a resurgence season last year uh, in 2020. And I was ready to give up on the left-handed reliever, a guy who is a homegrown prospect drafted by the White Sox. But he showed some stuff. So he's coming back. But the two names uh, that we will we will talk a little bit about is Nomar Mazar and Carlos Rodon. Rodon really being the name uh, that we're going to focus on here. They are they did not um, get offered a contract. So they are now free agents. A little bit interesting uh, related to the Carlos Rodon conversation, Dan, because, you know, typically the White Sox are pretty committed 
to their their homegrown prospects and especially guys that they spend a lot of time with. So your reaction to Carlos Rodon being non-tendered to contract? Yeah, it's a bit of a weird one without all the context, right? Which of course all these decisions are made with all that context, but it's like you look at Rodon as someone who, like you said, a homegrown, they spent a really high draft pick on him. I mean, this is basically like the White Sox non-tendering Andrew Vaughn down the road, right? So like that level of uh, prospect investment. But but I think the thing that's interesting is Rodon in his first four years, now granted the big thing is that he hasn't been healthy. And so no one was overly surprised by this decision. But you look at his performance before 2019, when he's the injuries really limited him um, in the last two years, is that his performance was fine. Everyone had higher expectations for him coming up and even after his rookie season where he had an ERA under four, but he was a league average pitcher when healthy uh, his first few years in the league. And four and a half million for what you hope to be a league average pitcher is a good deal. However, what he's shown in the last two years is a drop off. Now, how much that is injury? How much can he recover from that? Obviously, the White Sox think he's not worth that four and a half million, which is a crazy thought. Uh, it's also worth noting how much starting pitching depth the White Sox expect to have next year when you look at uh, Giolito, Keuchel, Dane Dunning, Dylan Cease, Kopech coming back. Uh, even maybe they give Reynaldo Lopez more chances as the number six guy. Jonathan Stever made his major league debut last year. Uh, he's a, not a finished product, but you know, not far from. Uh, so you look at all that pitching depth and you go, okay, well, maybe that makes sense and maybe there wasn't a spot for him. But it is kind of wild to see uh, Carlos Rodon not be worth $4.5 million. I think that's a good point. The The amount of money owed to Carlos Rodon had they tendered him a contract. And $4.5 million, and that's the thing too, is just the regression that he's shown. It's unfortunate that it came after a year in which he fought back from a major surgery. But the writing, it seemed like it was on the on the wall. When you're watching him compete, out there. I mean, initially, like his fastball was, you know, fastball slider combination is what made him an effective starting pitcher in this league. However, he did have issues with his command. And when the velocity started dipping, then he didn't really have much to rely on in terms of his out pitch because when you're mixing speeds, obviously that's just bread and butter, fastball slider. He was, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know if you evaluated this the same way, to me, a two pitch pitcher. And when the velocity dips as it has, it's going to be hard for a pitcher like Rodon to get guys out of the major league level. However, at the same time, like to your point, yeah, the White Sox have depth at pitching, but a lot of those are still relative question marks. And we don't really necessarily know the avenue in which they're going to pursue starting pitchers in free agency or the trade market. So when you're talking about a, a guy worth four and a half million who's been in your system for this long, and you decide not to pick him up, I, I think that's really telling, especially from the White Sox standpoint that, okay, they, they don't really like what they're seeing in terms of the regression. I mean, it, it had to have gotten to a point where it was like, okay, enough is enough, right? Because this is this is essentially where we're at. We saw him in the postseason. He just, he looked like he didn't have it. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it. There's nothing else to say. Like, he just, you're right. He didn't look like he, he looked like he didn't have it. And that's basically what this decision comes down to, is if that's what he is now, then that makes a decision. It's really that simple at that point. 
it's like you think of him as a starter, but what's his ceiling? Is he going to be a long reliever? Is he a back-end bullpen type? Can he perform in those roles? So I think the decision made sense, and the combination of not tendering a contract to Nomar Mazzara largely considered a move that many expected. It, it's, it frees up close to $10 million in cap space for the White Sox this offseason. Uh, general thoughts on Mazzara, were you surprised at all about the decision? No, I and and I want to mention something before we get too far yeah. on this. Uh, Rick Hahn in, in the, the team statement said we plan to stay in contact with both Nomar and Carlos and evaluate their possible fit with our club. So there's a chance they come back at less money. I think probably more likely with Mazzara if I was to guess because I think Rodon might be able to get some team willing to gamble on him for a few million dollars. But um, I don't know. With Mazzara, it's, the guy was... Similar to Rodon, we had a fairly established track record of what he was, right? Rodon looked like a league average pitcher when he was healthy, and Mazzara looked like a below average or a placement level outfielder and was even worse than that last year. So I don't know that you expect him to get much better. I mean, it was a better argument to keep Avisel Garcia around when they made that decision years ago. The thing is, it does mean that right field isn't, again, a, a blank spot heading into the offseason. Like, this is something they're going to have to upgrade somehow. So that'll, again, be something, whether it's the free agent market, whether it's trades, we'll see what the White Sox can do. But um, it looks like that's the spot they're going to have to prioritize again. I think that's a perfect segue to what I want to get into now is, you know, ahead of the non-tender deadline, we had the uh, Rule 5 protection period. You want to add these guys to the 40-man roster to protect them. Wilkin Cannon... Uh, Cade McClure, a couple guys who were not protected. Uh, Cade McClure, I saw come up. I, I I can't imagine a team is going to pick up Cade McClure, right, in the Rule 5 draft. And for Wilkin Cannon, I just don't know if there's enough on paper or his track record overall is enough, too, for a major league club to have him on the 26-man all season long. So I think it was smart of the White Sox to do what they did in protecting the players that they did in Gavin Sheets, Tyler Johnson, and Jake Berger. So I'd love to talk to you about those three in particular because related to right field, James Fox, our guy, had an interview with Gavin Sheets, and Sheets shared with us that he had work in the outfield this offseason, or I should say throughout the regular season independently in which he was at home, not with Schaumburg, but he worked on his outfield defense, and he said to Future Sox that he's willing to play that. So with that being said, do you think Gavin Sheets is a part of the conversation now legitimately as potentially a major league contributor for the White Sox? In 2021, probably not. Um, but I do think it does some interesting things for Charlotte. Um, now, again, this is in several assumptions deep here where the minor league season is relatively normal, where they have, you know, I looked at so many asterisks on on where guys are going to go because they didn't have a season. Do you want a guy to have to skip a level or are they going to have to move up because they're older? But if you look at Andrew Vaughn and Gavin Sheets, probably both heading to Charlotte, I think that's reasonable. Uh, you're looking at two first basemen. Now you can DH, but there's also kind of an outfield crunch. You could put Luis Gonzalez, Blake Rutherford, and Micah Rodolfo in the outfield. And, you know, and look, they've had roster crunches in the outfield. Uh, in the minors for years now because they've had a lot of talent and they've traded some of those guys away. You know, one of those kind of relevant to what we were talking about earlier, Steel Walker got traded from Zara. So they've had these kind of things and can sh uh, shuffle guys around, but Sheets could buy himself some extra at-bats in the minors next year 
if he's at Charlotte with Andrew Vaughn. I think Sheets certainly uh, showed better in the second half of 2019 with Birmingham to the point where I think it would have been logical for him to move up to Charlotte, where some of those guys maybe would have repeated the level in a normal 2020. So you look at Sheets, you know, trying to find some value because, look, you got a Brayu in the short term and you got Vaughn in the near term. And that's probably first base in DH and certainly first base for a very long time. As you know, at least you hope that Vaughn is good enough to be that. So Sheets is going to have to find at bats elsewhere with the White Sox. Now, if you're looking to trade somebody, I would argue he's somebody that's going to be high on the list because he looks like he can be a you know a competent bat. He's still got some solid prospect value. You might be able to to swing something uh, in a trade involving him. Now, look, these are there's a lot of things hypotheticals in that so who knows how it's going to play out but if he can play in the outfield that certainly gives him a better shot with the White Sox long term yeah and I think that's a, a great way to sum it up is that adds so much value to his standing within the organization to the point where they felt confident enough and this goes along with Jay, uh, Jake Berger as well is they want to have these players develop within their system they don't want them going anywhere else of course and I think showing the confidence to add a guy like Sheets, more so Sheets than Berger, because I felt like that was that was the play because of just the the status and, and just the way he looks. I mean, we're gonna talk we can talk Berger here in a second. But for the White Sox to have the confidence to add Gavin Sheets provides me optimism that maybe they have a plan for him. And like you said, that if they want to dangle him out for a, a, a trade potentially, I think he he provides enough value to get a decent return. And it all does hinge on how the minor league scene is going to affect Major League Baseball in 2021. Hopefully there's a season, of course. As we transition over to Jake Berger, this is a player, Dan, that obviously worked back from injury, but when you look at him now, and I think the progression, and not only what we've seen physically and in video, of course, but also listening to him speak, there's a confidence there. And it seems like Jake Berger is ready to go. And he told uh, you know, he spoke publicly about how he was set to play in a full season affiliate to start 2020. What does that say about Jake Berger's status now with the White Sox? It's really exciting, right? I mean, this is a guy that I don't want to say we wrote him off, but kind of close, right? Like it's, he was an afterthought for, for after all those injuries. I mean, it was Achilles, Achilles, and then heel, which is kind of related to recovery from the Achilles, but the time frame. And then you're talking about the 2020 minor league season getting canceled. Like the guy can't catch a break. He's finally healthy. And and some White Sox staff were really saying nice things about him. And he didn't get a chance to play. Like this is a guy who hasn't played since 2017. So he's going to come into – now granted they did, he played in that, uh, that college kind of semi-pro league uh, before he joined White Sox camp in Schaumburg. But like he hasn't played – organized professional baseball game well at least by the time spring training rolls around it will have been uh what three and a half years yeah. <laughs> like that's that's crazy so to see this guy back full go is really exciting and the thing is like we never really got a, a look at him like he's he's another example like as, as um you know we'll talk about uh great falls a bit like this is a guy that went to Canapolis four games after the arizona league and like was kind of just getting his feet wet in pro ball. It's a pretty aggressive assignment, even for first-round college pick. You know, and he held his own 744 OPS, but, like, we never really got a taste of what he could do. And we're still waiting three years later. So 
to the the chance to see him play, you know, and be fully healthy is really exciting. Now, what should our expectations be? That's a whole nother question. Like, I have no idea. How do the White Sox assign him to affiliate? Like, I'm sure. So they got a good look at him in Schaumburg. So they have some idea of where he's at. It's still not the same as as live game at bats and and seeing that on a regular basis. But I also think, you know, you're looking at a guy who's now on your 40-man roster. He's 24 years old. He'll basically be 25 by the minor league opening day on April 10, like right around there. Do you really send him to A-ball? Like, I almost feel like you have to send him to Birmingham and just see what happens. I think what you mentioned is really important. you got to reestablish yourself on the day-to-day basis, playing professional baseball. It's so important. And that goes to Michael Kopech's situation as well. You got to build yourself back up. And it's not like, you know, I maybe Andrew Vaughn, again, is good enough to start on the major league roster, the active 26 man opening day. But you want to make sure that he can produce over a consistent basis. And they talked about this too, Dan, the White Sox related to Luis Robert in their patience with him. And I know it's a different circumstance because they had a plan there. But also, it's a matter of we want him to struggle and we want him to work through a slump. Now, across the minor league season, Luis Robert, the anomaly, didn't really struggle necessarily. He did in the major league level, though. And this is what happens across a 162-game season, a 140-game season. I think that is an important point to remember here, and especially those guys who weren't in Schaumburg, uh, who, who who are going to be assigned, who are on the 40-man roster to an affiliate in 2021 it's going to take some time and it's a good thing that the white Sox have major league depth on their roster uh, that are ready to compete to win now because the depth behind them if you give it time say by late may early june this is going to be an extended white Sox 40 man and you can even extend it past the 40 man and we're not even talking about the free agent trade market that is uh upcoming here as we record this in early december so i think what i'm what i'm saying is my optimism is showing Dan overall, because I'm excited about the moves that the White Sox made. I think Rick Hahn was really smart about the way he played the the pre-Rule 5 draft, as well as the non-tender deadline. I think all the moves have made sense. And I I'm, I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to uh, what, what's about to transpire here, especially with those guys that we've been following here at Future Sox who have just been added to the 40-man. Yeah, I mean, that's it. Look, this is a this is no longer a rebuilding team. We saw the playoff appearance. This is a, a roster we expect to continue to get better. I yeah, I mean, I, optimism is is totally fair. Now and look, we <laughs> any optimism I have personally, I think, is tempered by questions about. Uh, maybe I'll give you a segue here about the coaching staff and the manager, um, or at least just the manager. We already yeah. had that podcast, so I don't need to revisit. Yeah. That. <laughs> <laughs> so the manager, by the way, Tony Larusa. That's a great segue. Uh, he has his coaching staff. The White Sox have filled the group. And let's go through the names real quick, and we'll, we'll talk briefly on it. And We'll have a conversation with Matt Cassidy about Great Falls and the Pioneer League, who are now independent, although partnered with Major League Baseball. So we'll get into that, so stay tuned. But first, uh, Miguel Cairo. How, initial response there. Miguel Cairo, the bench coach, I'm really excited personally. He's got front office experience, player development experience, and he also – was a bench coach, I believe it was with the Yankees, for a little bit of time. So he's he's kind of had his foot in the door in a lot of different aspects within you know the front office and on the field as a coach. So I I think Miguel Cairo is a great fit. I, yeah, I mean, look, I, I think if you isolate the coaching staff hires, which there's 
there's what four new guys in the staff. Uh, I, I think you can make a really good argument for each of them. Uh, Cairo specifically has been well respected, but like he's also someone who has ties to Larusa, right? So maybe it's part of that. But like I think most people thought it was a good hire. I think I, I have a hard time separating the two though, like in terms of what he brings as opposed to what Larusa will bring. Like sure. having having a younger bench coach as opposed to like you know, your trusted right-hand man that some of these managers have, like, a bench coach over many years, for example, which is nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying that some guys go that way, and in this case, you're having a a younger coach do it. Look, I think if you want to, I don't know if good cop, bad cop is the right comparison here, but certainly two different styles of voices, I would think, from from what LaRusa and Cairo give, maybe that's a good thing. Uh, You know, bench coaches have different roles and different staffs, and I don't know enough about Cairo as a coach to really give you an involved answer, to be totally honest. Like, we'll see how it plays out. I think on paper, there's some merit to it. So, yeah. That's why I'm optimistic, too, is just where he's been already. He's got professional experience, obviously. So, yeah, I was was very encouraged to see Cairo, the guy, as the bench coach. And moving on from the bench coach over to the pitching coach is Ethan Katz. And this is a guy who worked – with Lucas Giolito, credited uh, for a lot of the transformation. I mean, Giolito and Katz has that relationship to the point where in the offseason they work together. And I was listening to, they spoke to the media the other day, and Katz and Giolito were talking about just the type of dialogue that they have consistently, and that Giolito actually went to the front office and talked to them about, hey, this is why Ethan Katz is the guy for us. And he wasn't talking about just from a selfish standpoint, you know, overall, but he's saying this is a guy that can take a lot of our pitchers to the next level, just based on the relationship that I've had with him. And I think that's really encouraging. The White Sox listen, because now here's a Ethan Katz, or at least they took Giolito's take into consideration. So I think that was really encouraging. Ethan Katz, the new pitching coach, Kurt Hassler's coming back as the assistant pitching coach. Frank Menachino is going to come back. Well, I should say Hassler is the bullpen coach. He's now the assistant pitching coach, but Hassler's been a part of the franchise for a bit now. So he's returning, but under a new position. Hitting coach Frank Menachino, he's coming back. Assistant hitting coach Howie Clark, he's in his uh, first season now with the White Sox. Daryl Boston, our guy Joe McEwing, they're coming back. And Shelly Duncan, the analytics coordinator, coming in. Uh, as well in his first season. So going back to Ethan Katz, Dan, I think that's the highlight of the new coaching staff because Don Cooper out. We've been used to seeing him next to the manager in the White Sox clubhouse. And now it's now it's somebody different. This is Ethan Katz, a 37-year-old who's making his major league debut as a pitching coach. How does that make you feel? I think the thing that stands out most is what you were talking about with the backstory of, of with Giolito is uh... – the timeline there is interesting, right? That Giolito kind of did his own thing, comes back improved, and now he's bringing in someone who helped him do his own thing, basically, right? So it is um, it is fascinating. And look, if the White Sox are going to go from Don Cooper, who accomplished a heck of a lot as the pitching coach of the White Sox, like there's no question, uh, as, as a longtime fan, like he's one of my favorite coaches in team history because of all the reclamation projects. But maybe it was just time, right? And you look at what Cooper was and I don't want to say he was an old school, but definitely not fully modern in the analytics and everything. You bring in a guy who is, you know, more known for that. Right. 
And look, it's, it's nothing wrong with keeping your best pitcher happy, right? So, like, if that's something, then, then you know, bonus points for that. So I think uh, this hire I was more excited about. Like, you're asking me about Cairo, and I'm like, I don't sure. Like, it's a bench coach, you know? Not to be reductive about it, but, like, who knows how that's going to play out. You never know that dynamic until you see it in action uh, for two guys who've never worked together. But with Katz, you go, okay, on paper, this sounds really cool. Um, how many pitchers he can get his hands on. And 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 then look, from the Future Sox side, I think it's interesting too in terms of the development pipeline because, you know, we've talked about like Matt Zaleski, for example, like a guy who's got a lot of, uh, uh, of his fans, so to speak, you know, within the organization in terms of pitchers who've raved about him as a pitching coach. So you have guys who specialize in that and they can still do that. And, you know, maybe you could argue that a good pitching development coach is more valuable than a major league pitching coach in some cases. Now, sure, there are major league reclamation projects. Like I said, Cooper is one of the guys who's known for that. But let's let's keep that development pipeline going and see what this guy can do with some of the major league guys. But really, once you get a major league pitcher, it's all about refinement and getting them to be at their best as often as you can. So, you know, let's see what this guy can do. Were you okay with them going outside the organization, or were you looking for them to go with a Matt Zaleski or even a Kurt Hassler here? Yeah, I mean, this is a tough one because I, I think, like I said, they were qualified guys in the organization. I think the better question is, did the White Sox potentially upset some of those guys that they value that were within the organization? You know, like, oh, man, I thought I had my chance. Now I'm gonna. they got this young pitching coach. He's probably going to be here for a while. I'm going to have to leave soon. That would be the only risk to that. But I, I think the outside organization thing was, was maybe needed. Although like you look at what the development coaches like Zaleski or even Hassler, what those guys offer is already different from what Cooper was offering, I think. So in terms of what their style of coaching. So I think you're going to get it. You would have gotten a different voice either way, but you know, if you like your in-house guys where they're at, maybe just keep them there and, and keep them as long as you can until they, they, they move up elsewhere, maybe, if that's what happens. but I'm kind of with you. I don't know what the White Sox or how they feel or how it's affected those internal candidates, uh, but it seems to me that Ethan Katz makes a lot of sense, especially considering recommended by Lucas Giolito, uh, and he's got that, that history with him as well, and I, when you talk about continuing to develop reclamation projects, I wouldn't call Dylan Cease a reclamation just yet, but he needs to figure it out here soon, right? The, he, we want him to turn into the pitcher that we assume that he can be and allow his stuff to have its effect to its highest degree in Major League Baseball because a guy with his stuff, Dan, he can't be this ineffective. Yeah, but also, <laughs> like, look, Cease is... Like, yeah, he has the stuff, but the the I don't want to call them red flags because they weren't quite that strong. But this is a guy who struggled with command at various times in his minor league career. So yeah. to think that they would magically go away, you know, that doesn't always happen. And, you know, their stuff is very different, but he kind of reminds me of Gavin Floyd. Like a guy who had absolutely incredible stuff when he was on, didn't always have the best stuff, didn't always have the best command. But he was still a pretty solid major league pitcher. And and look, if you're looking at this White Sox staff, Dylan Cease could be the four or five, and that's pretty good. You know, like you look at Giolito Keiko, and we hope Kopech will be, you know, close to those guys, honestly. 
and Dane Dunning showed out pretty well last year. Like Dylan Cease, with what we've gotten out of him, is basically the fourth or fifth pitcher on the staff. That's really good. So while, yeah, we want to see him take that step and, and use that stuff effectively, and I do think we'll see some improvement. I'm not sure we're going to see him turn into an all-star at this point. He can be an above-average pitcher, and if if he's anywhere above average, this staff is like crazy good. So yeah, I'm, I'm not super worried about him in the short term. Like the guy's already a competent major league starter. You got better than that on the staff. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm really rooting for Dylan Cease because I love his stuff, but you're right. No, the, the command has followed him since single a with the Cubs. I mean, he spent multiple years uh, at single a before he was able to, you know, take that leap. I think he was 21 years old, 22 years old, still pitching in single A, which you know isn't isn't uncommon. But for a guy that you expect, or the highly touted prospect status of Dylan Cease, you expect him to kind of get past single A quicker than he did. Uh, well, let's see though, because if Ethan Katz comes with a different approach and can figure something out with with these pitchers, that's that's the goal. That's the idea. Let's keep it a keep it optimistic here. There's a lot of optimism going on here in the Future Sox podcast. And maybe we can break that a little bit because what we're about to talk about is maybe a little frustrating to some. But let's let's try and paint a picture of the latest development related to Major League Baseball partnering with the Pioneer League because they are now independent, although Major League Baseball has partnered with them so they can support them financially in various ways. And we have Matt Cassidy joining us here on the Future Sox podcast. He will break it down, so stay tuned for that. Thanks so much for tuning in. We're now pleased to be joined by Matt Cassidy, former editor-in-chief of FutureSox.com. Future Sox Podcast is where you're listening to Mr. Cassidy. Matt, it's so good to have you back with us. Another conversation that we get to talk about minor league affiliates, well, no longer, as the Great Falls Voyagers, formerly the rookie affiliate, advanced rookie affiliate of the Chicago White Sox, have now parted ways, I would say, because they are now... Uh, an independent league, as they are no longer affiliated with Major League Baseball. However, Major League Baseball announced that they are partnered with the Pioneer League. But there's still some technicalities where Major League Baseball is going to oversee the operation. Uh, We'll get into a lot of detail here about the recent moves, but I want to get your initial reaction as we saw the first step of Major League Baseball sort of slashing not only the draft, but minor league affiliates, the process of taking away minor league affiliates from organizations. And a lot of it relates to to financial reasons. But just overall now, as this transition starting to take place, what was your initial reaction as you saw the announcement of Great Falls leaving the White Sox? Well, when they talked about reducing the number of teams, I mean, Great Falls was immediately at the top of the list. Um, I mean, not that that's a good thing, but I think that was sort of clearly known from the beginning. The pioneer was that, uh, that's that second, second level or more advanced level rookie team, as you said, and I wasn't surprised that that was the one that would go if they were going to go. Um, my reaction to the overall plan of reducing the affiliates is the same as it was. I think I even talked to you guys some months ago about it, which is, I, I don't, I don't agree with this way of going about things. I think it's, it's not, and not just from a, fan perspective or a prospect follower perspective, but uh, to me, it's, it's not smart business the way they're going about this. Um, uh, as I've said all along, that I think there's a thematic problem in baseball front offices that they're stuck on the idea that the minor leagues are a cost center. Uh, in my view, what they really are is an R&D center. And I think when you look at it that way and realize that a lot of your team's future value comes from there, 
this whole approach is just sort of nonsensical to me. Um, back on the, on the Great Falls thing you mentioned, though, I'm sorry, I kind of wandered off course there, but, uh, you know, it's sad to see Great Falls go. That was the one affiliate I never saw in person myself. Um, you know, there that was, I think it was, what, uh, 18 years the Sox were affiliated with them. You know, it's tough for that community. It's going to be tougher for the players in the system. Um, but if one team was going to go, I think we all knew it was going to be Great Falls. Matt, could you elaborate a little bit more about Major League Baseball and your stance on Major League Baseball's decision to sort of cut down on the minor leagues? Because when you look at the grand scheme of things, people who, maybe the average baseball fan who look at an organization and see the number of affiliates and see the number of players within the organization, they say, okay, wow, like how many of these guys are going to play in the big leagues ever at all? And when you kind of specifically look at the advanced rookie level or, or great falls at this in a short season rookie affiliate in this case, you're not necessarily recognizing the players. And I think major league baseball is trying to cut those costs, right? Because of where's the value there overall. I'm just trying to get a, get a sense of why major league baseball is cutting out affiliates uh, within organizations. Well, I mean, I can understand where they're coming from with this. And again, I think they're looking at it as cost. And they're not understanding the, the value proposition the same way, or they don't see it the same way that I think I do. And this is one of those situations that comes up in sports or any field of business is you have, in this case, a cartel of major league teams where you have a lot of owners who have a very old school mindset on this stuff. They see the minor leagues as a cost. It's something they don't give much thought to. It's off in the corner. They want it reduced. You know, they don't understand the value proposition, I think, at a level that maybe people who spend time around the minors do. And so all it takes is a certain number of people in that major league cartel, a certain number of owners who want to do it a certain way. And even if some other teams would rather not do it that way, they get pushed into it anyway. Um, you know, and so, again, I understand there's a cost there. There is a cost to run a minor league. That's the way it is. And I also understand the value proposition of, well, okay, great falls. You know, well, look at the teams full of that. Okay, you got all your college draft picks and some of your older draft picks going through there. Well, how many make the majors? Well, you can go out on the old Voyagers website. I don't know if it's still there. I assume it probably is. You know, they had a list of, you know, a few dozen players who'd been through there who made it to the majors. So even if it's a small percentage, you have a number of players who that was a stop for them. That was a development stop. It was a place they played. It was a place where they learned the trade. So, and, and, when, and I think you have to look at the odds to me as a number of, of uh, how would I describe this? Scout, scouting in baseball is a low odds game anyway. Even the high end draft picks, a lot of them fit. And because it's a low odds game, you want a wide field to sample from, right? If you narrow the field and it's a low odds game, you're not just getting rid of the players that aren't going to be there. You're getting rid of a percentage of players that would be there and reducing your chances of getting those valuable players. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I, the whole contraction thing just doesn't. So, Matt, I, I think you're hitting on a lot of stuff that when I was looking at how Major League Baseball is going about this with, with contraction in the minors, um, just when you look at the Pioneer League and how it's been used, or, or any of the, you know, the Appalachian League's going, shifting away too, but I, I wonder, like, because when you look at the guys that have played for Great Falls, like you said, there's been a bunch of guys who have gone through and then played in the majors. Usually, it's like the tune-up level for higher draft picks who and especially with the White Sox we've seen them do this a lot if you're a top three or four round college draft pick there's a decent chance you'll end your draft year in Kannapolis so the White Sox from that perspective basically feel rookie ball is just a matter of get used to pro ball we'll get you in our system with our coaches get used to wood bats again and then we ship you off to Kannapolis 
Um, and I wonder if a lot of teams view it similarly where, and I'm just basically setting up the devil's advocate argument here. Um, not that I necessarily agree with it, but um, you look at all these high, you, know, you figure the top four or five round picks, even a high school guy probably goes to one of the, like the complex league for the White Sox, Arizona. Uh, and then would, even those guys tend to move pretty quickly to full season ball just because they're aggressive with them. So really I think what you're missing on development wise is mid to later round college picks who are missing on that middle stage. Uh, do you think that it may it basically major league baseball saying the money we save is more valuable than that refined development for a subset of guys who are less likely to make it? Like, do you think that's the kind of cost benefit analysis for them? Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's probably exactly what it is. And as I said, if you came to me and I, I would agree in the sense that if you said, okay, here's the current Sox U.S. affiliates, there's six of them, right? Plus the DSL team and makes it seven. If you got to have to get rid of one of them, what do you get rid of? I would say Great Falls too, because yeah. you're right. I mean, the high draft picks are either going to bounce AZL up to Kannapolis, you know, or even in a couple of cases, they even went to high A out of one of the rookie teams. They're often not going to stop in a place like Great Falls. It's, I mean, if you have to cut, that's the place to do it. What I'm saying is when you look at the mass of a baseball team, and obviously COVID threw it for a curve, but they were planning this before then. Yeah. Um, when you look at the development money you're talking about uh, investing in a relatively small place like that, it is pennies on the dollar, even of your overall development system. Um, and, and you're talking about, okay, why would you cut there in your research and development, if you want to think of it from that business perspective, why cut it all? Why cut out Great Falls? Why cut out an extra team? Because now you're going to try to cram all your rookies into one league. It's not even so much about the half-step level, although I suppose that might help some players, but they're going to get a lot less reps or they're going to have a lot fewer players in the system. Either way, you're either screwing with their development because they have fewer reps or you're having less talent in the system. So those long odds of getting value out of a player, you're just reducing the total value you get out of the system. So to me, it's just that the math doesn't work at that level. If you, if it's, if you forced me, yes, I pick great falls. I'm saying, I don't think they need to be forced to begin with. Now, as it relates to the independent scene, Matt, and I think this has a lot to do with what you're talking about related to players and opportunity, especially related to what we can expect a, a shorter draft upcoming in terms of rounds, number of rounds. Those players who, well, after the 25th round, past 30, they're going to be looking for an opportunity in the independent leagues. However, a lot of these independent leagues, including the American Association and, and the Frontier League, on top of the Pioneer League, are MLB-partnered independent leagues, which says Major League Baseball is going to help financially support them and use their resources as, okay, we might pluck some of these players, but you know they're not an affiliate to an organization. Uh, with that being said, how, how would you sort of evaluate in your words on how independent baseball is going to change as major league baseball is now using it as a partner league. Well, yeah, that's a hard one for me to answer because I, and I've been reading up on this. I don't get the impression that anybody and maybe even major league baseball and the leagues themselves necessarily hundred percent know what that, uh, you know, what that system is going to look like. What I can tell you right now is by the way, that's already a path. Like, just to be clear, I mean, the Sox have had players in their system from the Frontier League and from the Atlantic League before. In fact, probably every year or two, every year, there's probably one or two players in those leagues that go into the system anyway. Most of them don't get very far, but occasionally one does. So that aspect hasn't really changed. 
And if they're independent and unaffiliated, then those players are basically free agent type resources anyway. So that doesn't change. So what is changing? Is it just that Major League Baseball is going to throw some money at them so they have better development facilities? And if so, like if the, if the independent leagues are already that many steps away from your system anyway, in terms of the odds of getting good value out of them, why are you investing there, you know, for whatever facility investments are going to make, while essentially taking away your investment in a system that you have more control over? It doesn't. It, I feel like I'm missing something. There's got to be some piece of this puzzle I don't see. I don't know what it is. Maybe you guys have heard something. Yeah, Matt, because that's what I'm wondering too. It seems like. Okay, we're not affiliated, but Major League Baseball is going to keep an eye on uh, on these groups, and we're going to, like, for example, in Great Falls, Major League Baseball is going to provide initial funding for the league in, in terms of getting them going uh, operationally. Uh, they're installing scouting technologies, it, just according to what's going on in Montana, and so if Major League Baseball is going through the process of incorporating these resources to independent teams like what what where's the disc i'm i don't understand it either matt and when you i think it's just a matter of okay we don't want to be affiliated to operate under these cost deficiencies or or have to handle the financial responsibilities of organizations taking care of another affiliate that maybe is like you said i mean how much really is it hurting the franchise having two short season rookie affiliates in your organization, if Major League Baseball is just going to say, hey, we're going to su- support them financially anyway. I just, I'm not sure either what, what the idea is here. Well, and the cost is very low to begin with. So let's look at a team like Great Falls, okay? So they have a roster. I think in that league, it goes up a little higher. I think it's maybe as many as 30 guys, right? In that level, they're paying them, last I looked, uh, 1100 bucks a month for three months because it's only members of the short season ball, right? So you're talking about 3,300 a player. You may be investing, you know, a total of about $100,000 for the season on the entire roster. Okay, and it's a PDC, it's a development agreement, which means you're not paying for Great Falls Rangers to run their facilities. You're just paying to have those players on a couple of coaches. So maybe it's more than 100 a year. Maybe it's 150 a year. That amount of money, when you look at the development cycle around baseball and how much you're paying your major league roster, it's just a tiny, tiny amount of money. Now you're saying, okay, well, we don't have to pay the 150 anymore. Okay, great. Leaving aside even the talent development part of it, so what are you going to do with these other independent leagues, the Frontier and the Atlantic and uh, the Northwest or whatever the other one was that they're going to have as an indie league? You know, what, you're going to pay them to what? Have better facilities? That's probably going to cost you at least that 150 anyway, but you have less control. I just don't, I don't get the motivation. Yeah, no, that's exactly how I feel, man. It's because Dan and I were talking about this. How is it going to surface related to the players themselves? Like for, for Great Falls, the players who are on the Great Falls roster are still members of the White Sox organization. So the Pioneer League has to put together a, a brand new team independently. So they are set to pay these players, right, on their own. So... I just, uh, again, it's just, it's con- kind of confounding. I think Major League Baseball is partnering. Yeah, they're, they're going to have that support financially, but it's also like, hey, you guys are on your own and we're going we're gonna to use you when we need to. Yeah, and I'll tell you what, if, if, there, if, if this agreement, these you know, independent league agreements are such, if they are anything less than Major League Baseball paying the salaries of these indie ball players, then a lot of these organizations like the Great Falls Voyagers, when you look at, the relatively small amount of revenue teams like that can pull 
Like unless Major League Baseball is paying part of the salaries and a bunch of facility costs, the, a lot of them aren't going to make it. Uh, they're just just not going to wait a way to make money there. We've already seen a bunch of independent leagues before all this stuff that come up and fail, come up and fail, come up and fail. I mean, that's been the nature of it. There's been two or three stable ones, but mostly a lot of them just fail. Now you're adding like a whole bunch more to the mix. There's going to be more fail, especially given the way the economy is right now. Yeah, you know, Matt, it's interesting because, you know, I, I was trying to present the, you know, like I said, devil's advocate argument. And I think you brought up something that I hadn't thought about in terms of the, the less efficiency, like you have less control over these players, which I think is like the best counter argument I've heard for this. The thing I just wonder, and obviously we don't know, like we're not going to figure it out in this discussion. We don't know how it's going to be implemented, what it's going to look like. Maybe we'll have a different opinion like a year from now. But like, how do you think it's going to affect the other, like the Arizona League, for example? Like, will the Arizona League be better than it was? Because like, you know, you're, you're basically asking the complex leagues, I guess four to two of the White Sox don't have a team there. But like, you're asking those leagues to do two things now. Because before, they were like a landing spot for younger draft picks or later round picks, like a lot of high school picks, and were the stateside debut for foreign players. So if a lot of the more uh, experienced rookies go to Arizona, the gap between maybe the gap to Kannapolis or like for the White Sox or low A becomes smaller between the Arizona League than it used to be. However, maybe then that makes the gap to, you know, like the DSL bigger and those guys struggle more. So it is like you're they're they're really stretching, um, and I think that the result is you're going to ask teams to redo the way they do development for 18 to 20 years old. Really, is it, do you think there's going to be a, a shift in the way teams operate because of what they're working with? Well, there has to be. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I agree with everything you said about the fact that there's your you where you had let's say you had DSL to a complex league to an advanced affiliated rookie to A ball. So you had you know those you make those three different leaps, right, to get to first level A ball. Now, and obviously DSL is only for those for the Latin players. But, uh, you know, so it's either two or three leaps. Now you're making that in one or two leaps. So obviously you're, you've got more of a gap. And those, those 18 to 20-year-olds, as you said, are going to be caught in between. Um, I, I think that's a concern. But even bigger concern to me is unless you're going to substantially reduce the number of players you're bringing in, which is a different problem, then – how are you even going to get them reps? So not only are you taking a league like the ASDL or the Florida, Florida State League, you're raising the level of play because you have more older players there, more mature players, more experienced players. You're also making it so that they're getting in a lot less play because if you got 30 over here and 30 over here and now you're putting them together, you know, unless you reduced it by half, maybe you have 40 or 50 players there, they're playing less and against higher competition. So, yeah, the facilities in Arizona and Florida are all set for it. But competition-wise, you're giving them – fewer reps against harder competition. That just seems like that's going to make some of those young players, just the, the slot that you were talking about, Dan, I think it's going to make some of them struggle that, that you know, could have developed more cleanly and gotten somewhere faster are going to hit a wall quicker. So, Matt, your overall feel, obviously, I, I, you know, we could tell that it's not, it's not exactly what you were looking for. But the idea of the game of baseball overall, the, like how does this hurt the game? Uh, and to the player, you think, is like the start of shrinking the minor league system and overall, how does that affect Major League Baseball? Depends on whose perspective you're looking at. You mentioned the player's perspective. I mean, for the players who actually make it in, you know, as I think as, as Dan was saying, and I agree, you know, you're having some problems with the leap and then you're going to have some problems with fewer reps. Um, 
from the perspective of the major league teams, the individual teams, not necessarily MLB the entity, but the teams, you know, I think they're going to have a, a narrower field to work from. They're going to get worse reads on those players because they have less reps. They're going to get less well-developed. So I think you're, you're interrupting your R&D process in, in that business sense again. So I think it doesn't make sense to them. And of course, these communities too. And I don't want to, you know, we talk about the baseball end of things, but, you know, if you spend some time in these minor league towns, you know, in some of these towns, it's such a part of the culture of what's going on there. There's, you know, what is it, 40 or 50 or more teams that are getting, getting ripped out of that. Some of those won't make it. Some of the indie teams won't make it. All of a sudden, there's, you know, 50 cities or however many it is in a couple of years that don't have minor league teams anymore. And those communities suffer. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of, of negative that goes with it to, re to admittedly reduce costs. But I just it's hard for me to imagine that saving the money they're going to save you know, which is in the very low six figures for doing what they're doing, but giving up the potential value and giving up the development opportunities is not the right equation. A few more questions for you, Matt. And you mentioned the community, and that's something that I think a positive out of this relates to, hey, there's still baseball going on. And we looked at the numbers, and they draw an average attendance in terms of a small baseball facility. Uh, for minor league baseball and independent baseball, they draw a decent crowd like, overall comparatively. So I think the question that I'm wondering now is without being under the, the watchful eye of a, a major league organization, I'm worried that as an independent organization that they have to maintain themselves financially more so than they would have as they, if they were attached with the MLB affiliate as an MLB affiliate. I, I'm worried that, you know, over time that like you've been saying, it's going to hurt them financially to the point where, you know, you're not sure whether or not they could operate successfully overall. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because we talked, I think it was maybe April or whatever it was, or maybe May when we didn't know if there'd be a minor league season yet. Um, and one of the things I mentioned was, you know, a lot of these teams by the time we got to winter and we're starting to get to winter now, you know, once we knew more of what the structure was, which we're getting some hints at now, you know, teams will start running out of cash. I mean, there's some of these minor league teams that didn't have a season because none of them did. Some of them are going to be crippled enough to the point where over the next few months, some of them are going to be raising their hands saying, we can't operate. We can't open in the spring. We don't have money. Even the ones that actually can get an affiliation are not going to be able to survive it. So one of the things I had suggested at the time was, you know, major league teams, since they have all the leverage here, might go in and say, well, once these teams are kind of over a barrel financially, you know, we're going to start picking some of them up, you know, buying them for pennies on the dollar and then use them as a, as a portfolio asset as part of the major league team. Um, what's happened, in, and that may still happen, by the way, but what's happened since then that I've been reading the last few weeks, at least, it sounds like MLB instead is going to sort of exert control over the whole minor league baseball at the umbrella level. Once that happens, they can basically dictate whatever flow they want, right? These are still independent businesses, a bunch of them, but they can set things up so that it's awfully difficult for them to operate. And I still think that might be their long-term target. And in the meantime, a lot of these clubs are just, they're going to throw up their hands and it'll be really interesting to see what the major league teams do. Will some of them just throw some cash to stabilize them? Will major league baseball try to throw in cash to stabilize them? Will some of the major league teams, as I suggested, start buying the affiliates up? Will they just let some go under and pick some other affiliate that was going to get kicked out otherwise? You know, and just kind of leave it to, you know, you know, whoever doesn't make it. We're only taking 160 with us and there's 200 teams. Well, whichever you don't make it, you're going to the Wolves. Um, I mean, that, that could end up that way, too. I'd be really interested to see how that business flow happens in the next 
three to six months. Yeah, man. I mean, you're, you're covering all the bases here, like the, the competition, the development, uh, the finances. Um, the, the one thing, you know, and the, the Great Falls one is, is probably the, the one that we know the least about in terms of the, the three new leagues they're making with the, the draft league, the independent league, the pioneer league is going to be, uh, and then the, the collegiate wood, ball, uh, wood bat league, the Appy league is going to become. What do you think of the draft league concept? Um, I mean, another thing we don't really know until we see it, but w- what do you make of that one? You know, I was just reading about that one, too, and honestly, I'm a little confused as to where that falls in the pace of things with the draft. Um, yeah. I like the idea of it. I mean, I, I really do. I think that can be that can actually be a good thing. You could essentially, I think you could almost, if, if we weren't talking about league contraction, you can see it as almost like a, a pre-step even before the actual rookie affiliates, like a, a sort of a, a, not an audition league or like a warm-up league. I don't know what you want to call it, but... I like the idea of a draft league. I think it can be a good thing. And you can bring baseball to more communities. So that's actually a positive if they can make that work. I, I, I generally like the idea. Matt, really awesome stuff. And we'll leave you with this question. Really appreciate your time, too. It's always great to catch up with you. Uh, the White Sox we made the playoffs. That's a pretty fun season we just went through, despite only 60 games and all the challenges presented because of COVID. Now that we're entering 2021, we're hoping for a minor league season in some capacity, and we're starting to get to the point in a lot of these players' development. Now, granted, you know, there's not a lot to go on because of, you know, we were kind of restricted with the evaluation tools. Uh, Schaumburg, of course, is a limited basis for media, as well as all of these players working independently on their own. But we're, we're starting to see some of these high-profile prospects that we're, we've been following here at Future Sox for years, even back when you were editor-in-chief not too long ago. Guys like Micker Adolfo, Tyler Johnson, Jake Berger, they're, they're on the 40-man roster. Gavin Sheets, Yerman Mercedes. We're seeing these names now uh, with the White Sox. And I, I'm just curious your take. Anybody that you're excited about seeing? Andrew Vaughn, Garrett Crochet pitched a little bit this year as well. Uh, just some highlights because uh, not often, not too often we get to hear Matt Cassidy talk White Sox affiliated baseball anymore. <laughs> I don't think anybody was necessarily missing that, but I'll give you a couple of <laughs> opinions. Um, no, seriously though, I would break that group into two. I would group into two. There's the Andrew Vaughns and the recent draft picks that really nobody got a chance to see. But everything I've read, I mean, obviously a guy with a bat like Vaughns, I mean, I'm very excited to see what the, what that can do. Uh, and then there's the players that have been around for a little while, but that are, are you know reaching a point, kind of I wouldn't want to say make or break, but reaching a point where they've really got to show it at their careers. Um, Two of those guys jump out to me just for the talent that I believe they have, even if it never comes to fruition, the ceiling being as high as it is. One is Tyler Johnson. I mean, when he's on his stuff, the, his one-two punch combination of pitches, I mean, even when he was throwing an A ball, you could see like, yeah, that can work. <laughs> I mean, I think that, and I still think it can work even as a late inning reliever maybe. So he's a guy I would, you know, continue to, to see as a potential value pick for the bullpen. And then, you know, I'm not, I would not be quite ready to give up on Mike or Adolfo yet either. I mean, he's a guy that has, in terms of the athleticism and the tools, like everything is still there. And he will, he, and he's made advancements or had until last year when everything got screwed up, you know, and he's made the progress. It's, it's a little bit slow. It's painfully slow, but I still believe in the talent. So, I mean, with Adolfo and Johnson, I would say those two, I would not give up on. Berger, I'm, I don't, he's had such a weird run of it. I don't know what to make of him. Yerman, I'm I'm not I've never really been sold on to be honest with you. Like he's a fun player, but he's I don't I don't see the major league value there happening much. Um, I would stick with Johnson and Adolfo as the guys that I would really say there's somebody to watch in 21. 
Matt, really great stuff. Thanks so much for taking the time to jump on the Future Sox podcast. Uh, admire your work, as always. You know, back to uh, your time here as the editor-in-chief. Really made this site credible, as credible as it is, along with the help of Dan Santoramita, our guest uh, co-host here today. Uh, but again, Matt, thanks so much. Uh, thank you. It's always been everybody. It's not, uh, not one person. I appreciate being part of it. Always nice to hear from you, Matt. Yep, good to see you, Dan, or hear you. <laughs> as good as we're going to get around now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Matt, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much. All right, thank you. Boy, some really good stuff from Matt there, Dan. And like, we don't know a lot yet that that's going to transpire as a result of this news. But what he brought to the table regarding the financial side of it related to the community, as well as what Major League Baseball is trying to do, like where they stand with the independent leagues. So the the main takeaway for me is minor league affiliated teams were supported by the organization. Now, as an independent group, they have to take care of themselves, although Major League Baseball is their partner in supporting them in various ways financially. So is it going to be more difficult for a team like Great Falls on their own to take care of themselves? And also, how does it affect the player pool, those who are affected by the shortened draft, as well as you know, just overall as professionals? Is their baseball career going to be cut short as a result of just this minor cut down you know this restructuring within minor league baseball i I just uh there's a lot of unanswered questions i thought matt did a really good job of exploring several topics that i really didn't think about but those are the takeaways that i had i don't know about you yeah no i I think it was it was really enlightening to hear another perspective because i we've all been reading about it and we knew this was coming or, or expected this to be coming uh for months now and so we've had time to kind of process the information but i even then there's some things matt brought up that changed the my perspective of it not I, I don't mean to say that like oh he changed my mind i was against for it now i'm against it but just just the number of variables involved like there's so many things we don't know and as he said they may not know yet like there's a lot of things are still kind of nebulous in terms of how this is going to work the logistics and and in the implementation so it's going to be fascinating to see uh, I'm very excited for the draft league, but I don't know how that's going to work. Uh, yeah. I'm curious how the Pioneer League is going to look. Uh, I'm curious how the White Sox are going to adapt in terms of that, you know, like I said in the interview, like the 18 to 20-year-old age development. There's a lot of things in there that we don't know, and we really can't have a value judgment on until we see it in action. And what I saw was interesting, too, is that the White Sox – or not the White Sox, I'm sorry, Major League Baseball is going to offer these clubs – you know, scouting tools and they're going to put in these systems where, you know, they can evaluate launch angle or maybe not a launch angle, but exit velocity and maybe spin rates. You know, they're, they're putting those scouting tools in these ballparks, which, okay, why didn't you do that <laughs> when they were affiliates? I guess that's more on the organizations that have them under contract, but at the same time, I don't know. It's just, it's very interesting. This dynamic now, I, I think it does go back to, how these teams are going to take care of themselves financially. And I think a good thing about all of this, Dan, is there's still baseball in that community regarding in Great Falls in Montana. They drew pretty well, and we mentioned that in the interview. So at least there's baseball there. I just wonder how it's going to transpire, and I wonder how it's going to affect these players overall. Um, and there's, there, I have so many questions still, and there are thoughts racing through my head. It's just who knows at this point. This is all up in the air, and I think there's still going to be change upcoming that that we really can't foresee yeah and and like matt said like 
you know, like you're talking about the, the all the tech and scouting tools in the ballpark. Like that's the R and D. Like Matt said, that's what they're kind of testing out there, or it sounds like they're going to test out. Again, we don't know exactly what that means. We have an idea, but yeah, like I, I think from the pure R and D side, like it's cool to see some new things and see how it's going to work. And it sounds like they are at least going into this open-minded that things may need to be tweaked as they see it in practice, which is exciting. Look, the miners have changed over the years, right? Like they used to call, it used to be class D instead of single A and because there were different levels and there were fewer affiliates and there were more affiliates and things have changed and the organizations have adapted and that will continue here. So I think it's like doom and gloom, but it is on like, you know, we cover the miners. We get down to this nitty gritty. The nitty gritty is going to be a little awkward, I think, for a year, maybe two, as teams adjust to what they're working with. So it'll be fun to watch, but it may be a little messy. Dan, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for jumping on. And uh, we're thinking about James and his family. Happy for him, of course. But, you know, I think I think he did okay. <laughs> I, don't have, uh, I don't have a baby, and I don't have... Uh, James, uh, insane knowledge of, uh, DSL prospects, but you know, I can do it. I do what I can. <laughs> yeah. I think, <laughs> I, I think we'll have you on again. I think you passed the test. Dan, it's been a pleasure as always. Really appreciate all the work you do here at Future Socks. And, uh, yeah, we'll talk again soon. I'm sure. Awesome. Had a blast. That's Dan Santoramita. Also for Matt Cassidy. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Future Socks podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. Check us out on Anchor. Also subscribe to us on iTunes and on Spotify. FutureSocks.com is where you can find all of our content. Once again, thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you all next time.